6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck continues his teaching on the book of 1 John, chapter 5. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Every one of us, individually, needs to understand that and apprehend that personally. Romans 6.4, Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death. That like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also will walk in newness of life. That's why Paul, in his expression of what is the gospel, includes only three things. 1 Corinthians 15, verse, first four verses. He defines the gospel, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, and He rose again the third day in the Scriptures. Now, it's interesting. That he, di- he didn't disappear. He died. And not only died, He died fulfilling dozens of specifications. And those were planned before the earth was created. Those were planned before the foundation of the world. He didn't just die. He died according to the Scriptures. Okay. That He was buried. Do you know only Paul emphasizes that? We all know He was crucified, dead. And he rose again. No, he buried. Why does Paul emphasize? Because he makes a whole case of the baptism as a representation of that. Our baptism and coming up. That's why it's an immersion kind of thing to 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 testify to our to that mutual commitment, his commitment on our behalf and our commitment to to, to accept that. And finally, that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. How many of you knew he rose again the third day? Because he showed hands. In what scriptures, where in the Old Testament does it say he's going to be raised on the third day? Well, one of them will occur to you, of course, Jonah. Jesus said the sign of Jonah, as Jonah spent three days and three nights in the belly of the whale, so shall some man spend three days and three nights in the belly of the earth. Okay. Do you realize there's three other places? There's three other places. When Abraham is called to take Isaac and offer him, when the commandment came, the scripture tells us he was dead. To, uh, uh, he was as good as dead into in, in Abraham's heart. They traveled three days to get to Moriah, and on the third day, he's returned by being substituted. And uh, he, Hebrews 11, verse 19, makes reference to the fact that that was all in him a figure. He knew that Isaac would be resurrected. Because God had promised that Isaac would have children. You want me to kill Isaac? Okay, it's your problem, not mine. How is he going to have children? So he knew his belief in the resurrection of Isaac is crucial to the whole whole episode. That's why he named the place prophetically. But what's interesting is that how long was Isaac apparently ostensibly dead to Abraham? From the commandment until he's three days. Interesting. You say, Chuck, that's kind of that's kind of extreme. Okay, how about the how about the ark of, of Noah? When did the ark come to rest? 
Genesis 8, 4. On on Genesis chapter 8, verse 4, the ark came to rest on the 17th day of the seventh month. Wow! What's that got to do with anything? Well, that's the Exodus calendar. That's Genesis, so it's the old, excuse me, it's the Genesis calendar. When you get to Exodus 12, they change the, God changes the calendar. He makes the seventh month the first month. This that shall be the, Nisan, the Passover, would be the first month. So Jesus is crucified on Passover, great. How long was he in the grave? Three days. What time, when was he resurrected? He went in on the 14th of Nisan, he must have resurrected on the 17th of Nisan, right? So Jesus Christ, so, so, so Moses' flood ends on the 17th day of the seventh month, which is the month of Nisan. So the flood of Noah comes to an end. Our new, the God's new beginning on the planet Earth is on the anniversary in advance of our new beginning in Christ. You see an architecture there? Well, that still doesn't impress you. Okay, how about the um, Rahab the harlot? Rahab the harlot. In chapter 2 of Joshua, in verse 15, she's talking to the three spies that are there, and she's going to put a cord out the window, right? And two verses later, she refers to that cord again, right? The first time she refers to that cord, she used the Hebrew word hebel, which means cord, but it also means pain, sorrow, trauma kind of thing. It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, one of those things. Two verses later, verse 18, she again refers to that cord, but this time she used a different word. She used the word tikva, which means cord, but it also means hope, expectation. Okay, what's that? They're, they're different. The puns of those words are different. Between those two verses, guess what exists? Her advice to the spies to go to the mountains and hide three days before going home. She inserts an interval of three days in their requisite actions. So you've got three days between the sorrow and the expectation. You say, that's kind of absurd. That's called a remez. You have to be a rabbi to think that way. A remez is the hint of something deeper. And so I just thought I would confuse you a little bit. We'll go on here. Okay. 1 Corinthians 15.1.4. Okay, good. 1 John 5, 7, for there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one, if that verse is legitimate. And people aren't quite sure. There are some authorities that dispute the presence of these verses in the original. Now, our views are not impacted one way or the other, so I'm not going to either attack that or support it, let you know that there are in some Bibles, you have a footnote, that there's some manuscript suspicion that that verse may have been added somewhere along the way. I personally doubt it, but I I don't care one way or the other because it doesn't change our perspective because of the next verse and what we're really after. And there are three that bear witness in the earth, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And these three agree in one. There's there's apparently no dispute about that verse. See, in Deuteronomy 19.15, everything was established by two or three witnesses. Everything established by two or three witnesses. That's why you always have two angels at all these key events. Interesting. If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is even greater. For this is the witness of God, which ye have testified of his Son. He that believeth on the Son of God hath the witness in himself. He that believeth not God hath made him a liar. Ooh. Because he believeth not the record that God gave of his Son. We had, in our little preamble here, we had a question about amillennialism. There are many different viewpoints about eschatology, and there's room for 
all kinds of different views, but there's one that makes me very uncomfortable, and that's amillennialism. Because that view puts you in the awkward position of assuming God is a liar. The millennium is mentioned so often, our understanding of the kingdom that is so dominant in all the passages, Old and New Testament, will be clouded if you don't take it seriously. So be careful in your perceptions that you don't inadvertently make call God a liar. Now, a, a, a deep discussion of how sure can we be going through the prob- you know, a, a, a probability analysis of that is included in a number of our places, but it's also in Beyond Coincidence, and I believe it's also included in our Learn the Bible in 24 Hours. We include a section on that. See, if God is a liar, then nothing is certain. And this is the record that God hath given us, eternal life, that this life is in His Son. He that hath the Son hath life. Notice that hath, that present tense. That's not something you're going to get later. It's not something in the future. No, it's present tense. He that hath the Son hath life. And he that hath not the Son hath not life. The gift is not something that can be earned, by the way. Plenty of that we've beat that to death, I think, in the past. Certainly John 10, 27, 29 is one of my favorite. If you can lose your salvation, I've got a new name for God. Butterfingers. And Ephesians 2, 8, 9, of course. Okay. See, this is a gift. It's a person. The person of Jesus Christ. We receive this gift not only from Jesus Christ, but in Jesus Christ. This is the record that God hath given to us, eternal life in this life in His Son. The life, which is life indeed, Paul reminds Timothy. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know, not suspect, not hope, no, no, that ye may know that ye have eternal life and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. The word know. How important that phrase is. This is the seventh of seven reasons that he wrote this epistle. That ye may know that ye have eternal life. Remember we had the heptad structure. We went through that before. We'll review it before we finish. Okay. Our faith is not based on creedal statements. It's based on a person. And this we know phrase occurs over 30 times. Are you sure of your salvation? You should not finish this session. You should not leave this room if there is any doubt in your mind at all. Come see me at the end of the session. Let's nail that before you go home. It's too important. You should be sure of that. You have have the right to absolute certainty. And once you have it, I'm among those who don't, don't believe you can lose it. You can mess it up. You can lose some rewards that are set aside for you. But what you're getting is something he paid completely for, 100%. You can't add to it. He did it. See, people lack assurance because, A, they either have no basis for that assurance, or they don't know the Word of God. It's that simple. And you want to study that a little more deeply, we have a briefing pack on that very subject called, cleverly, Eternal security. <laughs> this is the confidence. <clears throat> this is the confidence that we have in Him. That if we ask anything according to His will, He heareth us. If we ask for most things, no, that says how much? Wow. Is John serious? Is he misleading us? 
This is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he heareth us. Anything. Even the needs and problems of your daily life. The little things that you figure he probably has no interest in, wrong. How many of you know the number of hairs on your head? Oh, <laughs> you're, yeah, you're guessing. Uh, <laughs> every time I take a shower, I realize that somebody's got to revise his inventory. You know? <laughs> the point is, he knows. He knows. We don't. He, do, he, he knows more about you than you can possibly imagine. If you ask anything according to his will, he heareth us. Philippians, Paul reminds the Philippians, but my God shall supply most of your needs according to his riches and glory. By, is that the way? No, no, no. But my God shall supply all. That's a great word. That's a great word. Now we have hindrances here. Unconfessed sin is a serious obstacle to answered prayer. That's an obstacle. I'm not going to go so far as to say that he won't answer it, but one of the reasons he probably won't may be because of unconfessed sin. Psalm, 100, uh, Psalm uh, 66, If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me, the psalmist declares. I believe him. There may be exceptions, but I believe him. Differences between husband and wife is a hindrance. Boy, guys, if you want to discover power, spiritual power in your life, start spoiling your bride. I believe that God's will is for each of us men to spoil her rotten. Rotten's in quotes, I mean, you know. I can testify to that, that when I start treating her properly, boy, does our life change. And I don't mean just from her point of view, from the whole picture. Difference between husband and wife. I don't have to preach to the women because you guys, you gals are all perfect. I understand. <laughs> John 15, If ye abide in me and my words abide in you, ye shall ask what ye will, and it shall be done unto you. Those are wild promises. Do you take them seriously? Put them to the test. See, prayer is laying hold of God's willingness. That's an attribute of God I think we underteach. God's willingness. What an attribute that we have a willing God. And I would suggest that He's predictably willing. The most exciting attribute of the God of Abram, Isaac, and Yaakov is that He delights in making and keeping His promises. Prayer is God's way of enlisting you in what He wants to do. When you're moved to pray, you're probably responding to the Spirit who is causing you to pray for what God wants to do anyway. He wants to bless you. What stands in the way of that blessing is you. How often that is that we do something stupid which causes God to have to set aside something He was going to do for us that was going to be so neat. No, can't do it now. I had that experience as a father. I'll never forget that. It was a silly little event, but it, it, it's echoed my life. I had a little surprise for one of my daughters. And I was looking forward to coming home to spring it on her. A little surprise. It, it, it wasn't important, just a surprise. When I got home, I found out that it was one of those days she was horrid. She was incredibly ungrateful. 
Well, I had two experiences. First of all, I was so frustrated because I wanted to give her this gift so badly. I couldn't now. I had to play the role of the, you know, and so I couldn't do that. And that was frustrating. I remember that frustration as part A. Part B, I also realized something else. What do you do with a child who's ungrateful? When they're disobedient, you can administer some kind of appropriate punishment. What do you do if they're ungrateful? Not much you can do, except sit back and feel pain. And I realized how often God must feel pain from my ingratitude or presumption. Those are probably the most painful sins from his point of view. Not the big ones. It takes care of the basic ones. Verse 15, if we know that he hears us, we, and whatsoever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we desired of him. We know, we know, we know. That's John. Not hope, not suspect. See, no is in the present tense. And prayer is not spiritual self-hypnosis. Prayer is the thermometer of your life, your spiritual life. Where are you in your spiritual life? How much do you pray? How do you pray? What's the quality of it? What's the frequency of it? What's the depth of it? Whew. We pray because God has commanded us to pray and because prayer is the God-appointed means for a believer to receive what God wants to give him. Oh, wow. Now the fog is lifting a little bit. We pray because God has commanded us to. That's reason enough. And because prayer is the God-appointed means for a believer to receive what God wants to give him. Interesting. See, it's a courtship. It's a dialogue. It's a participation thing. Jesus himself depended on prayer, sometimes all night. I won't ask for a show of hands of how many have spent all night on occasion in prayer. Not crying, praying. Okay. Verse 16, if any man see his brother sin a sin which is not unto death, he shall ask, and he shall give him life for them that sin not unto death. There is a sin unto death. I do not say that he shall pray for it. Ooh, everybody's worried now. What's that? Well, what's, what's that? See, there are occasions where one should not pray if checked by the Holy Spirit. Jeremiah 7, Therefore pray not thou for this people, neither lift up cry or prayer for them, neither make intercession for me, for I will not hear thee. God speaking to Jeremiah. Jesus did the same thing. In the in intimate prayer between the Father and the Son in John 17, that's really the Lord's Prayer. What we call the Lord's Prayer is really the disciples' prayer. It was an instructional technique. The real Lord's Prayer is this intimate chapter called John 17. And it's interesting, as Jesus prays to the Father, he makes a point, I pray not for the world. Really? Interesting. All sin is hateful to God and should be hateful to the believer. That's your measure of spiritual maturity, by the way. When you hate, when you hate sin as much as God hates sin, you're starting to get co you know, a concurrence there. But some is punishable with death. We're not talking about spiritual death here. We're talking about physical death. Nadab and Abihu, Achan in Joshua 6 and 7, Uzzah, and Ananias and Sapphira. These were, these were um, sins unto death. They were taken out of the picture physically. Does that mean they were unsaved? Not necessarily. They may have been, they may not have been. I'm not going to get into that debate. In fact, only God can resolve that anyway. 
but they certainly were taken out of the ballgame. Moses was, because he blew it at Rephidim. Some have been taken out physically because of misfeasance at the Lord's Supper. They Some sleep. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 30. That may shock you. When you take the Lord's Supper, make sure you do it right. Make sure you've prepared yourself for it. Now, there are some denominations that take that very seriously. They won't let children take communion. And they also have quite a service to make sure you're prepared. Don't touch it until you're really ready. Where do they get that stuff? Is that part of the the denominational heritage? No. It's They're trying to respond to 1 Corinthians 11.30. Apparently, Paul tells us, some sleep because they didn't behave properly at the Lord's Supper, weren't prepared spiritually, whatever. So take that seriously. You can carry that too far too, I imagine, but at the same time, be cautious. Don't experiment. <laughs> All unrighteousness is sin, and there is, there is a sin not unto death. There are believers who are alive today, uh, uh, we, believers who are alive today have all sinned. But we haven't sinned a sin unto death, I don't think. Anyone here dead? I don't think so. We did something that was wrong, it was unrighteousness, but God didn't take us home. If He were taking home every believer that sinned, I think we'd have an empty auditorium. We know that whosoever is born of God sinneth not. And he's talking about continuing sin here. And he that is begotten of God keepeth himself. And that wicked one toucheth him not. How? Through continual prayer. Luke 22 and so on. Satan cannot touch any believer without God's permission. Boy, is there comfort in that. Most of us in this room are destined for in the coming months and years to go through some pretty dark times. Because the laws that have protected us in the past are now being ignored. The Constitution that gave us a certain veil of protection is, is, has frankly been abandoned. The America that you and I grew up in and take for granted is really over. There's a whole new thing going on. Uh, so it's going, to be, it's going to be a different time forthcoming. And there's many of us that are going to have incredible opportunities for the kingdom. And there will be some people in this room that will probably die, be executed for the faith in Christ. Wow, what an opportunity. You know, that's easier to do than to live for Christ, by the way. Okay. But Satan can't touch you without God's permission. What a comfort that is. Satan can't touch you without the Father's permission. That's one of the main primary lessons of the book of Job. And one of the characteristics of the mature Christian is the ability to overcome the evil one. Really? Yeah, we talked about that in chapter 2, if you recall. God will not allow us to be tempted above what we're able 1 Corinthians 10.13, I'm sure it'll become one of your memory verses. There is, There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape that you may be able to bear it. What a promise that is. Put that in your collection. You know, by the way, one of the things you want to do, whether you memorize them or not, it's another thing, is you ought to collect His promises. Every time in your reading you come across a promise that's dear to you, make a card for it and make a card file. 
that's wonderful to page through from time to time. You don't have to, if you can memorize them, great, but at least be familiar with them. And we know that we are of God and the whole, we know that we are of God and the whole world lieth in wickedness. There's another way of summarizing it. There are three enemies that you and I face. The world, the flesh, and the devil. It might be useful to know a little bit about, I'm going to draw a little bit uh, from our book, uh, Kingdom, Power, and Glory, because you might find this interesting. We speak of authority. There are three word, number of words for power, but the, each word has a slightly different connotation. There's a word called dunamis, and that's the, word, the Greek word from which the word dynamite comes. There's a word, iskus, which is the used for power, but in a little different sense. And dunamis is the source of power. The sor- it's really emphasized the source of power. The iskus is the application, the result of that power. And what lies between them is kratos, which look at it like a control knob, uh, on, off an on switch or a volume control. Uh, it, and, and so that's the control of it. Okay, The source of power is the dunamis, the, the kratos is the control of that, and the iskus is the empowerment. And it's the control that causes it to be effectuated. So it's three different terms. And these collectively are called exousia, the authority. But it has those three different parts. And that's why as you, in the Greek, the Greek is far more precise in how it's used in the word. It, you can be using any one of these, but it's, it's the, the implementation, it, what it's actually talking about is useful to understand. Let me give you an example of that. If we have exousia, we have dunamis and rekratos. But who are our enemies? Well, we've got the world, the flesh, and the devil. Now here we're drawing on Donald Gray Barnhouse's book, which uh, impressed us as trying to make distinctions here. Uh, we have the Word of God, the cross, and the blood. And the iscus, the control of this, is the Word of God, the faith in the Word of God is how you deal with the world. That's pretty straightforward. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the books of 123 John. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store or search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.